Dear listener, by now you've come to expect nothing but the finest quality of audio, interview, and reasoned conversation on this podcast. And so that's why I would like to initially, before the interview begins with our guest Dave Sipe, apologize for the low quality of my track in particular. As this was recorded, I was away from my usual setup, and I simply ask that uh, you would be patient uh, with with us as uh, the interview progresses, and I hope that the uh, heavy reverb, which sounds like I'm in a tin can, uh, would not be too distracting to you. In fact, I was not in a tin can, merely a poorly uh, acoustically designed room. So, with that said, I do hope you'll enjoy this interview with Dave Sipe. You know, there's a prejudice, I think, sometimes among folks in the reformed vein where we think if it's old it's good and so we just kind of consume like old books without thinking through what the person's saying you're listening to the worship review a podcast which evaluates contemporary christian music for the good of the church to the glory of god this podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words emotions and ideas in our music we hope you enjoy this week's episode Hello and welcome to the Worship Review, the podcast which critically and charitably examines the texts of songs sung in the church and by Christians. My name is Tyler. I am a linguist and I'm joined as ever on this show by Colin. Hi, I'm Colin. I'm a history professor. And today we have the pleasure of being joined by Dave Syke from Kingsway Talk uh, podcast uh, network, I guess we could say. And uh, Dave, hi. Hi, I'm uh, very excited to be here right now. I guess network is the strongest word I would use for it. <laughs> what, what would you say, a bundle? Yeah, I suppose it's it's just kind of a it's just kind of whatever I want to do at the moment. But um, yeah, I'll call it a network. Sure, it makes it sound more official. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the network? What What is Kingsway Talk? Sure. So I started, originally it started out as just Spurgeon Audio. I started that uh, a few years ago at the suggestion of a friend of mine from my church. And it was just recording old Spurgeon sermons. And that first, like the very first few episodes were just that, no frills, just reading the sermon. And then we kind of began to build on that. Uh, I was able to, at first I recorded stuff at his house, and then I got my own equipment and was able to start recording on my own. And we began to do a few things, like um, we got together with another guy I met who was local to us on the Reform Pub, and we did a little discussion, like all three of us had gone to the infamous James White Leighton Flowers debate that happened a few years back here in Dallas, and we did a little discussion of that, and then we moved just, you know, we kind of got busy with things, and, and I started doing stuff more on my own. Um, me and my buddy Jared wanted to um, do a podcast together, just talking about stuff, and we came up with what we call King's Highway Radio, and I was like, well, I don't want to pay for a whole other separate, you know, feed and all the other things that go into having podcasts, so I was like, I'll just put on the same thing and have a different name, and then we just decided to create kind of the overarching idea of Kingsway Talk, 
And then that way we can do multiple podcasts and do whatever we kind of want to with it. And we did that for a while. And then um, me and my wife had a baby and that kind of got slowed down somewhat. But I'm trying to get it kind of rolling again a little bit. And Jared's been busy. He's he's a principal at a school, so he has his hands full with his own stuff now. So we're we're kind of experimenting with what we're going to do next. But that's basically what it is. It's just um different so so we've got Spurgeon audio which is still Spurgeon sermons and then a little discussion about things related to whatever the sermons on we got King's Highway Radio which is generally me and Jared talking about different issues sometimes we're going through books we've done a few interviews um and then there's scripture Sunday which I haven't done one of those for a little while but that's um just taking a chunk of scripture reading through it and then just kind of giving off the cuff like kind of here's what this says to me sort of thoughts so that's what that basically is all about. I'm curious, do you guys ever talk about worship music on your podcast? Um, we have a little bit, not nearly to the extent that you guys have. Jared is also a musician. Actually, we're both musicians. It's just that mine is a little less applicable to modern worship music because I'm a tuba player. So um, it's not as not as many gigs for me out there in the worship world as there would have been. <laughs> 50 to 100 years ago, you know. I have to say, though, the idea of a tuba worship leader is very exciting. Yes, that would be pretty awesome. And uh, I, I personally would like to see the general direction of the worship music industry begin to shift that way. I think that would solve a lot of the problems that we see developing occasionally. You know, I had a, uh, I have, I should say, I have a good friend who uh, is a euphonium player. Does that instrument mean anything to you or not? Yeah, actually, there's a guy at my church who is a euphonium player. He's, um, he and I have just gotten together on some nights to do duets because sometimes you just want to play some music and play some tuba euphonium duets, you know? That's just how things go sometimes, but. So he, uh, at our, the church that we were in for about five years, we, like he's a great musician and he would create these wonderful euphonium parts for the worship songs. But it was always like, it was kind of a challenge. Like it took some work to figure out how to, how to add an instrument like that into like guitar driven, uh, pop ish kind of worship music. And yeah. It's like, I remember just always thinking like, there's gotta be like, it's, it's, this is a problem, you know, it's not an insurmountable problem, but it's a bit of a problem that the music that a lot of evangelical churches do just doesn't make room for these sorts of instruments, or at least not easily so. Yeah. You know, that's one of those things, you know, my, my degree is actually in music. I got a bachelor's of music from Wichita state. And so I've, thought a lot about that kind of thing. I've played a lot of Christmas and Easter gigs. It is kind of funny. One of the th- one thing I've noticed is that it seems like most of the churches that'll hire out musicians to play are typically churches that don't necessarily have the greatest message. Like yeah. they're kind of on the edge of what are you preaching exactly? Cuz I don't I, I my very first Easter gig, I got hired for a church that was um it was very, very much not really preaching anything resembling the gospel. The I, I sat down at my my chair, and they've got the little program that says, you know, here's what the songs we're going to be playing. 
and you see the scripture readings you're going to do. And you saw a couple and I was like, okay, I know those. And then I saw book of Peter something. And I'm like, that doesn't seem right. Maybe they just left off first or second. And then I saw a reading from the gospel of Thomas and I'm like, okay, this is definitely not right. What's going on? <laughs> and then the, after it's, you know, the pastor gets up at some point and he basically in the course of his sermon uh, rips apart anybody who would actually believe that Jesus was real or that he actually um, died on the cross and rose again. And I, at that point I was just like, throwing up my check. I'm just going to yeah. ride this out and then get out of here. But that was not a fun time for me. But, you know, worship music's changed a lot over the century. I mean, heck, you know, Bach, that, that was what he wrote, was was the worship music of his day. It was the, the one of the most prolific composers of all time. And he wrote just tons and tons of church music. And um, a lot of that stuff changes with tastes. But I also think that there's a reason it changes because we're always trying to look at what are we really accomplishing in the church through music? What is the role of it? What is it doing? And, you know, we could spend a whole show just talking about the history of music in churches, but instead, I won't do that. That'll (laughs) that'll bore everybody. (laughs) Can I ask you one of those questions? I mean, because, you know, this is fodder for the pot. What role does music play in your opinion in the worship of god sure so i think um just off the cuff i would say a couple of things one is um worship music is a time that as a church we're confessing things we believe about god and about our relationship with god in a way that we can also engage our emotions in it just it's kind of like a whole a whole person engagement in confessing it isn't just saying words it's actually lifting up song which isn't just you know anybody can sing and make pitches but there's an engagement of your head and your heart and your love and your affection for God all of that together i think is done through um music because that's what music does music engages and speaks in ways that you can't always express um, in words. It touches on something that's a little deeper than language always reaches to. But language still matters. And of course, that's what causes some of the issues that you guys talk about here in terms of worship music that misses the mark with its lyrics or outright expresses intentionally or unintentionally I don't know if you want to say heretical ideas, but ideas that are a bit on the questionable side from time to time. Sometimes heresy, sometimes just error. And hopefully we're doing a better job of distinguishing between those two things. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious, Dave, have you ever turned down a gig because of uh, some of the, the practices or principles of a church that offered you a gig? Um, I would say kind of, I I did get uh, asked to do a gig one time and this was after I'd gotten really planted in my church where I am now. And I'd been asked to play a gig at one of those kind of churches where I was just like, I knew from prior experience that that it was not really preaching a, a gospel message of any kind. And so while the prospect of getting paid was nice, I was like, I'd rather spend Easter worshiping with my brothers and sisters at my church. And so I just said, Hey, I appreciate the invitation. 
but I'm going to have to decline. And I don't, I don't play as much as I used to, but um, it's one of those things where I've had to just realize my personal enjoyment of doing it has to be subservient to my conscience on that. And so I wasn't, you know, trying to knock them in any way. I just was like, I, I have to follow where I believe I'd, I'd rather be at a time like this. So yeah, I, I would say, I would say that's probably the closest I would come to saying just straight up turning it down because I don't want to participate in their worship. What is the worship like at your church? Is what's the instrumentation like? What kind of songs are you singing? Sure. So overall, it's a it, it's contemporary. You know, it's usually um, our worship leader plays guitar and. Um, we usually have, you know, the, the full band set up. I live in, in Denton, Texas. I don't know if you know too much about Denton. But, um, that's where there's two universities, including University of North Texas, which has a very significant music program. Most churches struggle to find musicians. We struggle to figure out where to put all the musicians. So, um, and that's typical for, for a lot of churches around our area. Uh, at least ones that attract, you know, that that have college-age people in them because you just have a lot of folks. And um, that's a good problem to have, of course, compared to some churches that just struggle to keep people on stage at all or, you know, struggle to have even a piano player from time to time. But um, we have always tried, in terms of like the music we do, they try to have a, a, a variety of things. Like you'll hear stuff that's more contemporary, including songs that I don't necessarily like as much for various reasons. But um, I think we do a really good job of balancing out with a kind of a, a broader scope. And there are certainly uh, some songs that I know they've just decided, hey, we're not going to sing this because we don't agree with it or because it expresses um, ideas about God that we think are, are not true, or it just doesn't express them in a way that people engage with. And, and they've gotten pushback on it from people saying, why does it say this? Well, that's a good question. Maybe we should think about that and not sing this song. And sometimes we've done that. So, But there are times like Easter where those of us in the church who do play something else, uh, like I told you about my friend who plays euphonium, he used to play for a Salvation Army brass band. So he's got these little brass brass band books, which are like four-part harmony. Sort of. And we played a couple of tunes out of there um, as a part of worship for a, it's me and him and two trumpet players. So that was fun. You mentioned earlier um, feeling a little bit out of place as a tuba player and wanting to go back uh, to something, uh, you know, 100, 200 years ago. Uh, you also mentioned Bach. I'm wondering uh, what would it look like ideally for you, uh, for your church to do uh, worship? Gosh, um, I mean, if I, in, in order for me to participate like that, I mean, I, in general, I'm, pretty happy with what I currently do. I mean, I'm actually doing some preaching at my church now. Um, so that's kind of subsumed a lot of my musical stuff. But um, if I wanted to do it, I mean, we're, we're not super big. We're about 120 people. But if we grew enough where we had more musicians that were in, say, you know, string players and brass players and woodwinds, it would be really fun to put together like an orchestra of some kind and play like maybe once a quarter or once every couple of months and 
Um, and I know, like, because I've actually talked with my worship leader who is a really fun dude and always likes to try new things. And I know that if we had the people for that, he would be like, yes, let's do that right now. So, um, and especially like when Christmas comes around, because everybody, Christmas is a fascinating time of year for worship music because there's such a wide scope of music that suddenly becomes popular. Everything from stuff that's like just barely out of Gregorian chant range to it was written two years ago, you know, is suddenly on the radio and everywhere. And there's a lot of stuff that you could do with a setup of folks that it would be fun and it would be stuff people can sing to, which is another challenge, but I'm sure we'll talk about that later when we get into the song, you know, what's really, how do you really engage your congregation in singing? But yeah, so I think that would be really fun to be able to put together, um, a small orchestra or even just like a brass quintet and, and play music that the church, the congregation is able to sing with, that would really be enjoyable. So that's the, that's the music aspect. What about the texts uh, of these songs? Do you have uh, any opinions on sort of newer contemporary music versus older, uh, more traditional hymns? Yeah. So there are certainly contemporary songs that I do like. Um, there's, a couple that I just balk at. Like I, there was one, I, I'm trying to remember which one it is. Cause I just listened to your, was it, you make me brave. I don't remember. It's a Bethel song, but it's, it has that line. You didn't want heaven without us. So you brought oh, heaven yeah. down. And every yes. time I remember the first time that we started to sing that, I didn't know anything about that. And when we got to that, I, I said like vocally, what? <laughs> like, what did you <laughs> say? It, you know, and it, I mean, in, in retrospect, I don't know that it's as horrifyingly awful as it could be, but it's still, I just, I just, I'm like, I'm not going to sing. I won't, I won't sing this because I object to it on theological grounds. I understand. And it's one of those things too, where there's like interpretation that goes into it. And so the way other folks read that is not necessarily quite as hard line as I do. So I don't give other folks a hard time for not having the same conscience about it that I do. But for me, I can't, I can't sing stuff like that. Um, but, you know, there's also, um, there's uh, an old, have you ever heard of Sturgeon's Axiom? Uh-uh. Theodore Sturgeon was an old science fiction author uh, back in like the first part of the 20th century. And he added what's called Sturgeon's Axiom, which is something he said. I don't remember where he originally said it, but he said 90% of everything is crud or something to that extent. Basically saying only 10% of art advances art as art. So like we've got some friends in our church who have uh, hymnals that are about 20, 30 years old. And we sometimes will sing songs out of them in our small group meetings. Um, and there's songs in there that I'm like, what in the world is this song? And it's, it's just either like incredibly cheesy or just you know, it's the same kind of complaint you might have about a lot of modern worship music. It's all splashing around in the shallow end of the pool and has no real meaningful thing to say about, about who Jesus is, about who God is as a being and our relationship and all the other kind of things that we think about when we think about really good worship music or about what grace is and what's been shown to us. And I, um, I think about that and I think I have never heard of this song and there's a reason I've never heard of it because it's part of that 90% that was written and printed in its time and is gone. And actually I think that kind of applies to the song you guys are doing. <laughs> we're talking about today where it's, it just, 
because I had never heard of it before you guys told me about it. Um, I was like, what is this song? I mean, the name instantly sounded like something that would have been a contemporary worship music song, but I had never heard the song, which means it really must not have stuck with most folks that do church music. Yeah, this is Chain Breaker by Zach Williams. I'm just going to add two things just based on what uh, David just said. So the first one was to say thank you for that image of uh, splashing around in the shallow end of the pool. <laughs> I, it's crazy that I've never thought about that, but it, that is a real apropos idea like yeah like making all these waves and and yes yeah, just you know water and splashing and it's like yeah but you know the deep end of the pool is over there yeah. <laughs> uh, that's just a great that's just a lovely vignette and just the other thing i wanted to add so you gave the example of that hill song it, it, it's a hill song song what a beautiful name it was the first oh, song what it is. that we reviewed on this podcast which says yeah you didn't want heaven without without us so you brought heaven down so just for listeners uh that that's the very first episode of the worship review and uh tyler gave that song two out of five uh jars jars of vegemite which i think you tyler <laughs> said with the what you thought was an australian that's accent. a lot of vegemite man yeah. And uh, I gave it two out of five empty Foster's beer cans. So we were both going with the Australians. There. Anyway, I want to make sure that uh, that we that we tied a bow on that comment. Tyler, you were going to say something else. Dave, it's really good to, to hear you mention that this hymnal from 30 to 40 years ago, you know, had it sounds like a little bit like a Pareto distribution where you have, you have like the top 20 percent or something is good and the other 80 percent is less so. Um, but it's refreshing to be reminded that older does not necessarily mean better. You know, if we if we just stopped in 1990, you know, like we just cut out the last 30 years of, of music, um, we still wouldn't necessarily be left with excellent uh, theology in our music and deep end level songs where people are swimming laps, so to speak. So I think that's that's good to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. That's... Uh... That's the thing. One of the things where there can sometimes be kind of a prejudice, you know. There's a prejudice, I think, sometimes among folks in the reformed vein, uh, where we think if it's old, it's good, and so we just kind of consume like old books without thinking through what the person's saying. Like we may not think do as much the same thing with music, but we definitely do it sometimes with like, you know, Martin Luther wrote the Bondage of the Will. He also wrote a book that basically is full of anti-Semitism. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's all good ideas. But it also, you know, sometimes in our culture, there's sort of another prejudice against old things where we think, oh, well, you know, what did they possibly know? They didn't even know that there was another continent on the other side of the planet. What could they know about anything? But it's one of those things where keeping in mind that sinful humans are involved in all of the creation of these and we should be wise and prayerful about what we put into effect in our churches that's important you already kind of talked about this a little bit but i wanted to follow up on some things you said so you gave yeah you talked about this hillsong song i wonder if you could talk a little bit more about some characteristics of worship music 
maybe in general, maybe we're talking about things that occur in both older hymns and newer music, maybe just newer music, maybe just older music, but what are some things that strike you? We ask all of our guests a version of this question that strike you as interesting or perplexing or odd. Like what sorts of things just uh, stick out to you either for for good or for bad um, in the music that we all sing in churches? Well, um, I think a few things that you often see, uh, maybe for at least the beginning, I can find my remarks to more contemporary music. Um, You definitely see a trend among a lot of it to be more written for the recording studio and less for congregational singing. So it has a lot more acrobatic kind of musicality going on where you're kind of pushing your voice and i don't i don't think that the best worship songs and i'm using worship songs in a very broad way not just you know contemporary worship but in the sense of all music intended for church the best worship songs have probably a more limited range and they're written with the idea that you're going to have people with all kinds of vocal ranges singing with you um for example i think that um city of light which i know you've reviewed at least one or two of their songs has a lot of great music that fits that vein but hill song stuff tends into more the range of you're, you're, you've got a singer who's kind of pushing their voice and they're writing stuff that fits more of the vein of what's popular in contemporary music period, not just worship music. And that's why it sounds like that. Um, but and I also think that there tends to be lyrically a tendency towards not expressing things in a very specific way. I had this thought the other day, well, actually after we had spoken through email, um, that the big three of the worship industrial complex, which would be to me like uh, Hillsong, Bethel, and Elevation, they produce a lot of music. And a lot of it is music that's written in a way where a church churches of varying theological stripes can use it without objection. Because it's written kind of, not vaguely, but like they avoid certain phrases and certain terminologies. So like if you're a church that's got more reformed, serious preaching, you know, exegetical, you you can take a song from one of these and plug it in and know that it's not going to cause a lot of hullabaloo because it will be supporting what's taught there without necessarily contradicting it. You can also put it in a church that's more in the aggressively charismatic I can use that turn of phrase kind of church and it'll support the way that they're doing church because it's got a lot of um, expressions in terms of phrase that fit really well into that. And so it's written in a way where it's more about commercial consumption than it is about more an honest expression of the singer's thoughts and desires of to worship God. So, um, I think those two things together have produced a industry that writes a lot of music that doesn't really worship God. And it doesn't help that we've seen many of the more popular groups in the last few years just straight up either apostatize or become so detached from the fundamentals of the faith that it's hard to even call them faithful at this point. And you feel mixed about using some of their music. And at that point, I'm more talking about maybe, you know, uh, what's that guy? Um, Michael Gunger, I remember that was, yeah. was like straight up and 
Is he is, is he full of atheist or is he just agnostic? I think he's he's like a kind of spiritual agnostic, if I recall. If I recall, I, I, I haven't looked into his case recently. And it is. Uh, go no, ahead. I, was like, I mean, I remember when his when that one song of his got really big. I liked it a lot. Um, You're talking about uh, I am a friend of God. No, uh, well, maybe that one too. But there was another one that we sang. Um, I can't think of what it is now, but. Um, and of course, this was when I was going to the village, which was you know Matt Chandler's church, and yeah, I remember hearing from somebody that he didn't like that there was a lot of these like very reformed churches that were singing his music. I don't know if that's true. I heard it through somebody who said they'd read it in an article somewhere, but I don't know. It's like when you have stuff where you can put it in any one of these places, and you can have people who don't really want to sit with the fundamentals of the faith. And they can sing it, not have any qualms about it. It makes me kind of go, what's really being said here? In contrast to like, say, in Christ Alone, which uh, that had the controversy with, um, I think it was the Methodist church that wanted to put in their hymn, but they wanted yeah. to change one of the lyrics. They say, instead of the wrath of God was satisfied, what do they say? The love of God. The love of God was magnified, I yeah. think. Yeah. And they basically said, no, you can't change our song. It says what it says because that's scriptural. And they stood on that and it wound up getting taken out of the hymnal. And I'm like, okay, good. You should have something firm like that. Instead of giving in for the sake of money, um, you should be able to write a song that expresses something clearly clearly and biblically and stand on it. So, One of the things we tried to do in this uh, podcast is just as much as possible look at the text, but you're right. It can be really even disheartening sometimes to read interviews by some of these artists or yeah, listen to their explanations for songs. Cause you're just thinking like, do you realize what, what you're saying? And you know, have you, you know, are you, are you reading your Bible? I don't know. Again, I'm not trying to make uh not trying to make harsh judgments, but at the same time, yeah. I mean, you can get one impression from a song and you can get another impression from reading what somebody has to say about their song or about their faith. I mean, the other way, it can go the other way too. I mean, you can, you can have a song. We've had this happen several times too, where we're reviewing a song that maybe to me seems quite wishy-washy or vague. And then you're, you learn that there's, uh, you learn a little bit about the story behind it or the, yeah, just some, some, what the person was reading or whatever. And you're like, Oh, I, I, I didn't think about that, or there, there was clearly this whole biblical account that I just was unaware of, or just hadn't thought of, or you know. So it, it's it's pretty illuminating at times to do that, but also can be quite disappointing. And I don't know how much that should factor in. I've always wondered how much that should factor in. So I have a friend uh, who's a worship leader at a church, or I guess was a worship leader at a church. I'm not sure if he's still leading worship. Um, and his pastor said, look, we're just going to stop doing all Bethel music. We're going to stop doing all Bethel music because of some of their doctrines. Yeah. And I was I was unsure whether that made sense. I'm not saying I agree with it or disagree, but I thought, okay, yeah, on the one hand, Bethel, the church movement, has, has got some practices and beliefs that I don't agree with. It doesn't necessarily taint all their music. I don't know, David, if you have thoughts, further thoughts about how to handle how the church should sing music from sources that like you know like michael gunger or something mm-hmm. like should should all the churches stop singing friend of god i mean let's just ignore the fact that maybe that song intrinsically has problems but let's say it didn't 
should the fact that Michael Gunder, Gunger has apostatized invalidate the contributions that he's made to worship music? Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the things that I've thought about a lot, you know, because um, I've heard some podcasts out there who take a very hard line and say, no, don't sing anything from Bethel, don't sing anything from Hillsong, you know, don't do any of these things because they are, you know, teaching false doctrines. We should keep our people away from them. We don't want to be appearing that we're endorsing them. And I can understand that, and I don't begrudge them any of that because they're pastors and they need to, you know, do what they need to do to protect their flock, and that's fair. Um, but I also think it's, a, at the end of the day, it's kind of a Romans 14 thing where if you are able to, because you have good pastors pastoring and you're putting it in the context of good teaching, you're able to use this music without having it produce people who want to run off into, say, kinetic nonsense about Christ, or they want to suddenly be able to name and claim their way to riches in the middle of your Reformed Baptist church, I think you can feel safe doing that. But again, you know, it's all a matter of wisdom about the specific songs. Too. Like one of the biggest controversies we faced as a church was over that song that everybody loves, um, Reckless Love. And <laughs> there was a lot of people that said, we started singing it, and a lot of the people who, who were like leading in worship liked it a lot. And um, several people, including myself, came to the pastor and said, hey, look, we understand why they like this. And we also understand that there's an, again, there's an interpretive element to it where they read it through a certain lens and put it and, and, and put it in a context that to them makes it a worshipful thing. And they don't read into it some of these more outlandish elements that we are perceiving that, for example, I mean, just for me straight up, calling God reckless in any context is not appropriate. I'm sorry. That's mm -hmm. not a word that you'd ever be used to describe God because of what it means. Even if you're saying, well, it's from the perspective of humanity. Okay. But the problem with that is God isn't, he, God is not a human being in the sense that he makes those kind of expressions of himself. Him seeking after his flock is not reckless. It's purposeful, the opposite of reckless. And anyway, I don't mean to get off on a rant about a, a different song entirely, but uh, um, I, I th my point of bringing that up is simply to say, I don't begrudge churches that say no 100%. I do think that there's room to use that kind of stuff, but it does involve good shepherding and wisdom. You know, I, I remember the guys on the um, Doctrine and Devotion podcast had made a good point about some of this when they talked about it a few months back, and they basically said, look, be wise about it. You're not bringing Bill Johnson in to preach, but if you're using one of their songs and it isn't saying something that's outlandishly ridiculous and, you, you know, and it, it brings people into a place where they can sing and worship God in that properly, then don't let it be bothering you. Um, I also know there's an argument about money and about the fact that they get some little cut from CCLI whenever people use their music, but okay, so what? I mean, so I, I don't take a hard line on it, I think is where I kind of land, but I don't 
begrudge the consciences of people who say, look, I can't. I mean, we could apply this too with, with uh, movies that are brought up in sermons. We could even apply it with like, say someone like C.S. Lewis. I mean, we've brought this up before. Oh, I would vehemently disagree with C.S. Lewis on a few points, right? I mean, vehemently. Um, and yet it doesn't mean I'm not going to talk about things he says in the screw tape letters or things that he talks, says in, uh, you know, various allegories that he uses in the Narnia series, et cetera. Like it's beautiful, wonderful uh, I mean, stuff. So I, I was thinking about that passage from the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe recently in the context of just the horrible things that happened, you know, you know down in, in South Texas for me with the these poor little kids just being shot down for no reason. And you look at this world and see horrors and wickedness. And then you, I thought about that passage from Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. When he shakes his, you know, what is it? When, um, when he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. And I'm just like, man, love that. It's just... Because it's not, you know, it's it's a it's a poetic imagery, which a lot of those songs are very poetic, and that's why many people like them because of that poetry. And I understand also why other people don't. But again, if it if it doesn't trouble your conscience, then don't then don't worry about it. And if it does trouble your conscience, then be wise to that. But I think we need to be gracious and charitable to one another in that. You know, one of the things that we on this show have gotten, I wouldn't say flack, but criticism for is um, reviewing songs out of context. So just looking at their words, just evaluating the words for whether or not they uh, make sense and uh, speak truth. And, you know, not er at least very early on, like when we did What a Beautiful Name, for example, um, in the very early episodes, not taking into context uh, the how the song was formed how it would likely be performed, in what context. So if it just says it's you throughout the whole song and doesn't actually address God or, or uh, use, you know, one, one of his titles, um, that, that that might be uh, being too harsh or too unfair to the song. But I will say um, the other side of that that I think is uh, actually a boon, it helps us, is that we are able to take a song from some group, say, like Bethel, and just look at that song. And we don't have to talk about all of the inner workings of that church. We don't have to talk about, um, you know, spurious motives or anything like that, because we, we are just focusing on this one song. And I think, like Colin said, this can be applied to music. It can be applied to movies or entertainment or any other number of things, consumption. Um, it's just like what you said, Dave, about uh, Martin Luther. There, there's some things that are that he wrote, which are fantastic and brilliant. And then there are things that he said, well, first of all, he said a lot of vulgar stuff, but I mean, that's sort of beside the point. Um, but then there's some stuff he said that is just atrocious and really false. And uh, we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. I would agree with that completely. And, you know, I've always thought that the way that you guys review stuff is really helpful at thinking through some of the tricky things. Because uh, honestly, a lot of churches that use stuff less critically could probably do with stopping and saying, okay, what does this really say? If we say we love this song, 
what are the lyrics really saying? And when we're lifting our voices in song together, what are we really expressing about what we think about God? Because when you're singing together, that's that's a confession of your church, basically. Um, and again, that doesn't mean that you can't have uh, an interpretive element of it that is defined by the larger picture of the worship in the church, because I think that's that's always true. Um, but you know, if you're trying to teach very strongly about God's sovereignty over everything in this world, even the hard things. And then all you sing about in your worship is, oh, I love God, God's wonderful. And there's, it's just this like, you know, just kind of a generic Jesus is my boyfriend kind of worship music. You know, I I was... (laughs) Maybe I'll get in trouble for this, but I was thinking of that South Park episode where Cartman starts a worship band and he just brings yep. love songs and crosses out baby and writes Jesus. Jesus and baby, yep. And um, I was thinking about that and I'm like, okay, so this song, I, I, I do think it's important that we have songs that are more straightforward affection for God because we should have that. I mean, there's stuff all over the Psalms like that, but if that's all you do, and you don't have anything that digs into the deeper element of God being with us in times like this, then it makes you really go, what are you teaching your congregation? So that's kind of where I end up landing on the whole thing. I don't make anything simple. I make it all complicated. Thanks for being here, Dave. Yeah, I'm really glad I got to be here with you guys. This has been a lot of fun. And please feel free to trim out any of my blathering about tuba playing to your your heart's content. It's exciting. I, I don't think we'll cut too much of it. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Worship Review with uh, guest host Dave Sype from Kingsway Podcast. You can find that at kingswaytalk.com and find uh, Dave also there. And uh, we hope you'll tune in again next week as we take a look at Zach Williams' song, Chainbreaker, which was nominated for a Dove Award. Uh, Thank you, and goodbye. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.